Your source for community, Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine, The Bay 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. You're listening to In the Dirt. Hello, Muskoka. This is In the Dirt podcast on Hunter's Bay Radio with Laura Thomas. On this program, we will get into the weeds about gardening in Muskoka, sharing stories and tips from my experience as well as other landscape professionals. On the show, we will also dig into the relationship our gardens have with Muskoka's surrounding landscapes, as well as how our gardens support wildlife and biodiversity. So let's dig in. Well, I hope everyone had a wonderful holiday season, um, a great Christmas and all of that. I feel like after that holiday bump is over, as gardeners, we tend to focus on planning and, you know, choosing out what seeds we want to grow next, what bulbs. We're looking deep dive into catalogs and online, um, you know, stores. Um, yeah. So I feel like, you know, as part of that, I kind of wanted to talk about Um, trends that are happening now, things that are, you know, what we're looking towards for 2022. And for me personally, as well as, you know, what I'm seeing a lot of stuff online and landscape, um, you know, either magazines or, you know, websites, that kind of stuff, Facebook pages, is a trend towards ditching lawns, which I personally think is fantastic. And also, you know, in partnership with that, so people are removing their lawn and then really wanting to kind of sub in that um, like a meadow or a naturalized kind of garden. And so that's really what I wanted to talk about today is kind of ditching the lawn and meadowing up and um, how we do it, why people do it, because I realize that for some of you listeners out there, this might be a novel idea, might be something you've never ever considered or heard of. You maybe love your lawn and think, why would anyone want to get rid of this lawn? I love it. So we're going to talk all about that. Um, And so first off, we kind of, what exactly is a meadow? Um, For most of us, you can kind of have a picture in your head of what a meadow is. We really already kind of know what it looks like. Um, It's actually just any sort of open habitat that's vegetated by grasses, flowering plants, and other non-woody plants. There's typically a higher dominance of grasses. So you're usually looking at about 75% grasses to 25% um, flowering plants. And for the residential kind of gardener meadow, you can bump that up. And I find most people opt for kind of like a 50-50. But it is important that you do include grasses. Even if you want a lot of color, um, you will achieve that through, you know, 50% of wildflowers. You really want to make sure you get a lot of grasses in there. That will um, give the, the meadow more of a meadow look. And it's actually really important ecologically to support wildlife and from an aesthetic perspective too. Grasses add a lot of kind of architectural texture and they're just lovely. So um, don't be afraid to, to keep it at that 50% or higher of grasses. So um, that's essentially what a meadow is. We have lots in Muskoka. We have lots of wet meadows, dry meadows, Um, And you can mimic those if you want. So feel free to go out. Um, Muskoka Conservancy has a lot of 
um, landscapes that we can explore. You can kind of take note of like what plants are growing in certain areas. So for wet meadows, um, you're looking at like Joe pie weed, swamp milkweed, bone set, um, flat topped aster, vervain. You know, we're really blessed to live in a landscape that has such diversity up here. Um, when it comes to dry meadow, obviously the black-eyed Susan, um, butterfly milkweed is another great one. It's not found in Muskoka, um, but it definitely, it does well here. So, um, depending on what your site is like, will kind of dictate what kind of meadow you'll want. Um, but yeah, so other kind of, you know, if you're still thinking, oh, I don't know, like, what's the point of why, why do people want to put a meadow in place of, you know, a lush green lawn. Um, there's a lot of reasons, and it really comes down to personal choice. Um, but one big one, um, for me anyway, is that you're not having to mow the lawn. Um, so you can even ditch the mower entirely if you're so bold as to get rid of all the lawn. Um, and when you're replacing that with a meadow or even like a meadowscape, so something that's not um, as natural looking, that it's a bit more intentional and more of a garden aesthetic. It can have a lot more interest and color and there's a lot more beauty. There's a lot more interaction with pollinators and songbirds. So it's obviously supporting wildlife for a lot of people. That's very important. Um, I, we've talked about this before on the podcast that, you know, a lot of our pollinators and songbirds are rapidly declining. Their populations um, are declining. So they do need a, a support and planting native plants is definitely one way in which we can help them. So ditching the lawn and creating a meadow can definitely support a lot of our local wildlife and overall can kind of be better ecologically. Again, because we're not mowing, we're not running that gas mower. Um, there's also less watering. I mean, really there's no watering once it's become established. Um, so there's less um, water going into the system. Um, you have a diversity of plants and typically native plants have really deep roots. So some of them can be upwards of like three to four meters deep compared to a uh, turf grass, which is just a few inches. And so what happens when we have a really deep root going through the soil is that it creates a healthier soil. There's more organisms, beneficial bacteria, and all that stuff happening underground um, when we have a deeper root system, especially when it's with a diversity of species. And when we have that happening, we have, like I said, a healthier soil. And um, with the deeper roots, you know, as most of you probably are aware of, so plants play an integral role in reducing carbon emissions. They soak up carbon through the process of photosynthesis and kind of bury it deep, either into the roots or into their, um, the plants themselves. So when we have a long-living perennial um, with a deep root system, like a prairie landscape or a meadow landscape, they're gonna be much better at storing carbon, sequestering carbon than a lawn which personally I think is fantastic. Imagine if we got rid of, you know, 50% of all lawns and turned them into more of a, a prairie or meadow landscape and how that would impact carbon um, or carbon footprints. 
I find that really intriguing. So that's kind of one little benefit is that it kind of can help your reduce your carbon footprint. And um, I think there's going to be a time on the podcast that I'm going to be chatting um, more about this. So stay tuned because it's it's really piqued my interest in the last year or so. Um, and obviously, if we're getting rid of lawn, if most people do kind of amend their their lawns, whether it's through fertilizers or um, herbicides, fungicides, that kind of stuff. So if we're not putting those on our lawn, that definitely has positive ecological environmental benefits. Um, and we're able to kind of leave a lot of that natural plant debris, the leaves, the stems. Um, we're not having to rake them off of our lawn and bag them up and send them to the compost. Uh, so that's also another benefit for wildlife. So those are all the benefits. Those are kind of most of the reasons that people are really doing it. And so if this has kind of piqued your interest and you're thinking, okay, yeah, maybe I want to get this going for 2022. Am I too late? Should I have started this in the fall? Um, well, it really depends on the size of the area and what you want to, to do. So if you're wanting to seed the area or if you're wanting to plant it. So typically, if it's a really large area, say over a thousand square feet, you're probably going to be looking at seeds. If it's a small area, um, you can do plants. And by all means, you can do both. It's not one or the other. So if you're choosing seeds, it's best to do that in the fall. So anytime after the first hard frost, so around Thanksgiving, anytime in October, and you can push that as back until December and um, until we have like a really thick snowfall on the ground. Um, so I often like that because as gardeners, we're kind of um, bored at this time of year, right? October, November rolls around. There's nothing really to do in the garden, but we have often a lot of nice sunny days that you want to be out there. Um, so this is kind of something that you can do late fall and still be out in the garden. If you're wanting to you know, meadow up using plants. Spring is really your best time. You can definitely do that in the fall, um, more September, because you do want those plants to be established before winter sets though. And one kind of caveat, or not really a caveat, but something I like to people to be aware of. So when you're choosing to grow by seed, um, it's nice to know that it does obviously take a lot longer, especially if you're doing a lot of native plants um, native Ontario plants, it can take upwards of three to five years to really get um, a meadow or a landscape that's established. And this was told to me years ago. I honestly don't even remember who told me this. So sorry, I can't give anyone credit. Um, but when you're growing from seed, the first year, the plants sleep. So they're not really doing much. The seed's just kind of there. They might have germinated. They're underground still. Second year, they creep. So they've emerged. It's often just like the foliage and you don't really get a lot of flowers. Um, and third year they leap. So in the third year, they've become established. You'll often get flowers. Um, so that's kind of what I always try to remind people is that it can take three to five years. So it takes a long time. Whereas plants, you're looking at about one to two years for it to become established. And that really obviously depends on the age and the size of the plants that you put in. But general rule, that's it. So I've really sold you, I can tell. Um, you're, you know, already planning ahead. 
And now you're thinking, well, how do I get rid of this lawn? So we're going to talk about that um, just after the break, um, different methods of removing the lawn, and it really also depends on the size of the area. So we're just going to take a short break to hear from some of our excellent uh, supporters and sponsors. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka, your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. Hello, and welcome back to In the Dirt, a gardening show that takes a more natural approach on why and how we garden in the 21st century. Welcome back to In the Dirt. I'm Laura Thomas. Today, we're talking about how to get rid of your lawn and put in a meadow. So we kind of talked about why meadows are so fantastic before the break and um, already I think everyone's sold. They're ready to get rid of their lawn and we're just gonna talk about how to do that. So it really depends on the size of the area. If you have a small area, you can do it by hand. It's not fun, I've done it several times. I don't recommend it. It's not great. Um, the reward is definitely worth it, but it's a lot of hard work. Um, if it's a larger area, so anything bigger than like 10 by 10 feet, I highly recommend just going to your local um, tool rental place and renting a sod cutter. Um, they're usually about 100 bucks a day or so. They're pretty easy to use. This is coming from someone that does not love gas-powered tools, that has a really hard time starting them, using them. I'm not a huge fan of them, and I find most cutters are pretty uh, pretty easy to use. Um, they work great on a traditional kind of thick lawn, and essentially the blade just cuts underneath the, um, the roots, about an inch or two, and slices it, and then you can then roll the, the sod up and chuck it away and compost it. Um, if it's kind of patchy, or really sandy soil, um, it can still cut, but what you'll have to do is just kind of rake a lot of that up rather than rolling it. Um, so yeah, use a sod cutter if you can. Um, if it's a really small area, um, you can try smothering it, and that's, you're essentially just covering the area in like a, a really thick, dark colored um, plastic. Um, sorry, that's solarization. I got ahead of myself. So to solar for solarization, you're using a kind of like a thick black plastic tarp and you're covering the area and essentially just baking any sort of vegetation that's underneath it. And this takes a longer time. So that's kind of the downside of it is that it's easy to use. It's not labor intensive. Um, but say you, you know, you put the tarps out in April or May after the snow has melted you're probably not going to want to start planting or seeding until the fall. Um, and the other method, like I had mentioned before, is smothering. And this is pretty popular. Um, a lot of people use this method, again, because it's easy. It's not very labor intensive. Um, often it's more accessible because you can kind of use stuff that's already around your house. So sometimes people lay cardboard. Um, you can use kind of any sort of mulch or... Um, any organic matter that's going to decompose and you're just covering the lawn or the vegetation. And it, this is like solarization though, is that it takes a long time. So you're not going to be, you know, probably planting or seeding until the fall or even the next year. 
Um, so those are kind of the different methods. Smothering and solarization, again, are best for really small areas. Um, and that, because it takes such a long time before, you know, you can actually put anything green in there, I find it's not necessarily ideal for um, high visibility areas. So like in a front lawn or something, because it can look quite unattractive, you know, for like a year or several months, just like this ugly black tarp or, you know, cardboard flying about, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, so it, it really depends on the size, what you have access to. Um, at the end of the day, though, you really want to make sure that the site has a clean soil bed. So um, that you re remove as much as the weeds as possible. Um, don't rototill. Um, sometimes people do like to. They feel like it'll pull up all the weeds. What often happens is that you actually just kind of awaken dormant weed seeds and give them the opportunity to germinate. Um, so don't do that. You can mulch, uh, especially if your soil is not great. If it's really sandy or you have really clay soil, put a really thin thin layer of mulch down like an inch or so if you're seeding even less than that just enough to cover um, the soil you don't want it too thick because then the seeds will be smothered and they might not germinate um, so that's kind of what you want to do again to kind of you know nail it down for you is you, you want a clean soil bed you want to remove that vegetation um, and again, you can amend it by making sure that there's good soil on top by putting mulch or compost or something down. Um, if you are choosing to go by, go the seeding route, if you have a large area, um, one question people often get overwhelmed with is how much seed do I need and how do, you know, how do I spread it? How do I broadcast it? So um, typically what you need is about a half a pound of seed for a thousand square feet. So again, that's half a pound or 226 grams per 1,000 square feet. And that's for, um, that includes grasses and flowers. So you're gonna get a mix of hard seed and fluffy seed. And that's just a general kind of rule. It always depends on what species you're using because different species have different seed weight and seed size. Um, so that's just a general idea. And one um, trick that I learned early on is that when you are seeding it, take that um, mixture and pop it into like a pail of sand, um, clean sand, something that doesn't have weed seeds in it, and use that to broadcast your seed. When you mix it with the sand, it gives the seed more visibility and you're able to see where you've spread it. And don't um, kind of, don't all spread it at once. So take half of it and walk, you know, you know, perpendicular down one end and then go the other direction. And this will give you better coverage so that it's not you're not essentially um, broadcasting and it looks like cornrows or something like that. So that's kind of a, a, a quick, you know, hack kind of to make sure that you have good seed distribution. Um, and when it comes to plant selection, the next big, big question, it'll depend on your site. So if it's sandy, if it's um, full sun, if it's wet, if it's dry, um, reach out to any of the seed suppliers 
Um, there's lots of articles online. Do a little bit of research. There's tons of information out there for you. Um, by all means, feel free to reach out to me as well. I think my contact info is up on Hunter's Bay um, website. If not, you can just go to our website. It's hiddenhabitat.ca. Um, and you can find out which seeds are going to be the most appropriate for your location. Uh, my top 10-ish um, plants, so Black-Eyed Susan is, is great, um, and Lanceleaf Coreopsis. These two I always include um, for a lot of reasons. So A, they germinate really easily. So um, either you're going to have some high winds, and they germinate and flower quickly. So sometimes... Not always, but sometimes you can even get a flower in that first season um, out of both of them. If you don't, then you definitely are getting flowers and good growth the next year. So it's a nice kind of like um, early succession kind of, not a cover crop, but it, it, it gets in there and it covers the area. You're getting growth, which is important to feel like you're successful as the gardener also ecologically so that you're covering an area and it's not going to get dominated by um, invasive weed seeds or things that are going to blow in. So black-eyed Susan, Lanceleaf Coreopsis. Um, again, we want to choose a lot of grasses. So little blue stem is a beautiful one, uh, Indian grass and a big blue stem grass. So those are usually my three go-tos. They're gorgeous grasses, different heights, little blue stem is the shorter one. It's about two to three foot feet tall. And Indian grass and big blue stem are about five to seven feet tall. Beautiful grasses. Um, Virginia mountain mint is another one that I always like to include in all of our wild landscapes and meadows. Um, it is extraordinarily popular with a lot of pop uh, pollinators. And it does cover an area quickly. It is in the mint family. It's not aggressive and invasive like the typical mint we know of, but does have a similar growth habit in the sense that it'll fill out and cover an area, but not so much that it'll take over or dominate the landscape. Um, and it's got a beautiful little white flower on it that is heavily visited by a lot of pollinators, like I said. Other really popular ones are gray-headed coneflower, which has a nice lemony yellow flower. Um, any of the milkweeds, so common and butterfly milkweed, smooth blue aster, wild bergamot or bee balm, um, the lavender colored one, and foxglove beard dung. Um, those are all kind of really popular ones that I love to include in our meadow mixes. Um, and, you know, for maintenance wise, you do want to look at mowing that, especially in the first couple years. And essentially what you're mowing is often not the native plants or not the things that you've planted and seeded intentionally. You're mowing the annual seed weeds that have kind of um, grown in there or the perennial ones too. So, you know, mowing usually around June or so, um, that stops things from kind of setting seed and making things a little bit more weedier. Um, so in the first two years, you want to mow um, around June or so. And then going forward, occasional mowing is fantastic, especially if, you're, um, you're, if your landscape is not like what would traditionally be a, a meadow. So 
with meadows, meadows are, it will eventually s succeed or their succession into a forest. Um, not all the time, but they're usually kept at bay either through drought or flooding. So a dry meadow, it's going to dry out and stop those woody plants from taking over. And a wet meadow is going to occasionally flood, which stops those woody plants from taking over. If you're doing this in your front yard, you're likely not going to have an extremely dry habitat or you're not going to have occasional flooding. So what we do to mimic that disturbance is by occasionally mowing it, and that can just stop woody plants from taking over. Um, because in a meadow, you usually want things to be about 10%, um, or you want woody plants to be less than 10%. So you can chuck a tree in there and a, and a nice flowering shrub, and it'll still be a meadow. You just don't want it to be the dominant um, plant. So that's kind of, you know, um, when it comes to management, another key important thing is just to know your weeds. I often tell people when it comes to gardens is that it's easier to know your weeds more than your plants. So know your weeds and find ways um, that you can manage them. So if they're an annual weed, stopping them from going to seed, etc. cetera. Um, so that's kind of... Um, I'm sure there's lots more and people probably have lots of questions. Again, there is a lot of really good resources online. Make sure that it's from a vetted source. Um, sometimes I try to stay away from um, blogs like Canadian Wildlife Federation has great resources out there as well. The North American Native Plant Society has great resources. So reach out to those tools um, and hopefully we're all going to you know, ditch our lawns for 2022 and meadow it up. Um, anyway, that's all for me for today. I'm Laura Thomas, and you're listening to In the Dirt on Hunter's Bay Radio.